Well, we sing a song like it is well because so many times it's not well. And there are lots of reasons why some things are not well with our soul. Things press in on us. We're unsure about the future. And so if you were listening online this morning, that you know that uh, this Sunday, this morning online and tonight here at the park is all about hope, learning how to hope. We said this morning and repeat it now for all of us that that we believe that hope is, is not an emotion, it's not even a feeling, although we would quickly characterize it as such. More than that, it is a, a skill and a habit that maybe we need to tap into a little bit more regularly. And so if we were to ask you this question, maybe you can answer for yourself. If your hope was a gas tank right now, just like in your car, empty, full, half, quarter, three-quarter, whatever it is. Some of you drive around on an empty tank. Some of you drive around on full tanks. Donna and I were in one of our cars yeah, the other day, and we looked down, and the little light was on. And so immediately I'm trying to figure out who was driving it last, whether it was me or her. It was me. And so if your hope was a tank, how full would it be right now? If your hope was filled up, happens because you have a sense that the future is good and good things are coming your way. Yeah. And if your hope is lower than that, then usually there's a reason why. Often I know about you, but for me in my life, my hope wavers based on circumstances. If something's going well, my hope feels filled up. I feel like I'm moving forward with purpose and direction. I believe there's a good future I can count on. I'm moving toward it. I even do so with energy. Hope gives me energy, and it moves me in good directions. But when hope begins to wane, it's often because my circumstances, something's happened. I've got some news. Maybe I sat down and read a couple articles I shouldn't have read from the various news sources, or maybe somebody has shared something with me that brought me down a bit or discouraged me on their behalf for what's happening in the world, or maybe just in our little circle, and hope begins to become depleted. All of a sudden, life feels a little bit hard, and I move a little slower, maybe with a little less purpose. This happens to you, and as we do that, hope begins to wane. And as hope begins to wane, we lose sight of who God is, where he is, and what he's up to. So here's the question I'd like for you to ponder as we move into just a few moments tonight, some stories, and just a chance for you to reflect on where you are and your hope meter. What would you do in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships? If you're single, what would you do as you sort through the endeavors of your career, your home, your personal world? What would you do? How would you move? How would you act if you believed that not only that God was with you, but that he was working on your behalf and that he was working beside you to bring about good things and the results that you and he would achieve together? What would you do if you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God was with you in that way? How would you move? What would you do next? What kind of goals would you set? How would you step? With what purpose would you show up at your job that you don't want to be at? With what intention would you engage in the relationships that are draining for you? What would you do with your life differently if you knew for certain that God was with you? 
So a couple years ago, my friend Mark and I were playing tennis on some local courts here in town. It was just me and him playing, just some singles. And there was another group of guys that were playing on a set of courts near us. And, and I like to people watch. I like to people watch wherever I'm at, which is not good while you're playing tennis. You're supposed to ball watch when you play tennis. But I was, I was people watching, which means Mark beat me. And, uh, but we were watching these guys play. And as I paid attention to them playing, I thought, this is interesting. It's about, I don't know, maybe a dozen guys. But it wasn't like a team thing. And they were moving around and playing each other. And, and one of the guys, I think, saw us kind of paying attention to them. And he came over and chatted with us. And he said, hey, we're just a group of guys that play. We play every weekday here in Castle Rock. Most of us are retired. And uh, we have kind of a little ad hoc league. And every week we have a commissioner that kind of sets up our teams and our games and we just play each other and rotate. And if you guys would like, he looked at us and he thought we were both retired. Now, I understand that when you look at Havercate, that he's, you might think he's retired. But me, I mean, he just thought I was independently wealthy, I guess. And so he said, if you want to join our team, if you want to join our old group, you're welcome to. We'd love to have you. And so we introduced ourselves to a few of the guys and we've joined. And Mark and I play every now and then. I started to play for the tennis. I like to play tennis, gets me moving, a little exercise. I only do things exercising that you forget you're exercising while you're doing them. That's the only time I like to exercise. If you can think about it while you're exercising, it's the wrong activity. And so engaging, playing tennis, that's why I started. But I stay for the stories. I stay because I get to learn the stories of these fellas that we play tennis with, and it teaches me about hope. So the, the group caught our attention that day because the gentleman that came over to speak with us, well, his name's Bill, and Bill has one arm. He has his right arm. His left arm is missing. He's got a little bit above his elbow, but not much. And I don't know if you've ever watched a one-armed man play tennis, but it's something that will catch your attention and keep it for a while. Bill has to work harder than everybody else. When I play tennis, I use both arms. I swing with my right I catch the ball with my left, I pick up the ball with my left, I toss my serve with my left arm. I do all kinds of things with my left arm. It gives me balance. I can't imagine what it would be like to play with one arm. And so I had this question in the back of my mind about Bill. How long has he been playing with one arm? And how did he lose his arm? And I had to kind of gauge the social equation of how long are you supposed to know a one-armed man before you ask how long have you had one arm? It turned out to be about six weeks, and so I finally asked him, Bill, what happened to your arm? And so he told me the story after tennis, and Mark and I stayed. We heard the whole thing, and it's an incredible story. It happened when he was very young. It's been decades since he's had one arm, and to watch Bill, he has to work twice as hard as every other tennis player. He throws the ball up with the hand that holds his racket, and then he serves and he's better than the average player of these men that have two arms. And so one day I asked him, Bill, how does it feel to know that you with one arm could beat most of these guys with two arms? He said, I've had to face that my entire life. He did laugh one day when I said, Bill, how about today you play left-handed? <laughs> and so I knew we were friends when he laughed at my joke. To hear his story and how he lost his arm and the resilience that that has built into his life, how he sees it as a faith moment has taught me about hope. So like I said, I'm there for the stories, which is tough to do because 
they came for the tennis. The gentlemen are there for the tennis. I'm there for the story. So I got to ask questions in between games. And sometimes they get a little irritated and they just want to play tennis. So the gentleman who is a commissioner of our tennis league, his name is Jim. I don't know how old Jim is, but he's well into his retirement years. And he can move fairly well for his age. And so I asked Jim, I know he's married. I said, hey, Jim, have you done any traveling this summer? This was a few weeks ago. After my little hiatus and sickness this summer, I joined the tennis league again. He said, oh, we can't travel. My wife is sick. She's been sick for years. We can't leave at all. We can't go anywhere. Ah, Jim, there's a story behind it. But now we have to go on and play tennis. And it took me three weeks to get the story out of Jim because of all the tennis we had to play. And I just want to sit them all down and say, look, I'm here for the stories. Can we set the tennis aside for today? I just need to interview all of you. And so I asked Jim, Jim, how's your wife doing? Well, she's doing a little better. What's her condition, Jim, in the next game? He says, well, she has autoimmune disorder. She has some uh, issues with uh, arthritis and all kinds of So he began to give me the litany of health issues that she has. And then after the next game, he said, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but my wife was fine up until about 2005. She went to visit our son while she was at his house. She was bitten by a black widow spider. And all of her health issues ensued after. Now, Jim tells this with a smile on his face. He talks about caregiving for his wife and the numerous ways that he has to meet her needs. He talks about being housebound, and yet here he is, commissioner of our little league, making friends at his age, connecting with people and getting out and moving his body and pursuing his own health, all the while taking care of his wife. And when I hear these stories, I'm reminded of hope. Now, I think about Bill and his one arm. I think about Jim and the circumstances that he's in. And I think about the circumstances of many of your stories where life has thrown you a curve. And it occurred to me this week as we're thinking about hope and what it means to learn to hope, that hope is a skill. It is a habit. It isn't an emotion. It isn't even a feeling that life isn't so much about what happens to you. We all have life happen to us. Sometimes it comes in the form of a work injury that takes your arm or a black widow spider or something else that happens in your life. But sometimes it comes in the form of something completely unseen that you didn't know was going to occur. And when it does, you're faced with a choice. How do I see it and how do I respond to it? And how do I move forward from it? The people who would readily say, my hope tank is full. I'm walking with a lot of hope. They understand this one simple truth. Listen close. God is with me. And he loves me. And he will walk through whatever I experience alongside me. And he is working for my good. And we will get through this together. And he will use it for his glory and my benefit. God is with me. I know he will never leave me. And I know he loves me. This one perspective is the thing that will carry you through and fill up your hope tank. Now, as you go through this interesting season in our country and pandemic and in the Middle East and all the things that are happening in various places, hot spots like Haiti and many others in the world where unrest and pain and struggle and tragedy are the norm every day. This is a capital T truth. It's true for all people and all places and all times. Your hope tank will be full. 
when you're able to look at your life and say, Lord, I don't know what you're up to, but I know this, you are with me. You will never leave me. And you will help me through this circumstance, and we will get through it together. This is true of every story in Scripture. We started this morning talking about the life of Abraham and hope. We used Romans 4.18 that says this in in the NLT. Even though he had no reason for hope, maybe you listened online this morning, I don't know. Abraham what? Anybody? So nobody was online this morning. We're talking to the, he kept on hoping. That's right. And so Abraham did this. He kept on hoping. And you can see this story of hope in spite of circumstances and throughout his entire family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. Maybe you know the story of Joseph. He grows up. He's the youngest. He's a little cocky, probably not understanding the jealousy of his brothers, so much so that his brothers are are incredibly jealous that they put him in an incredible circumstance. If you read the chapters of Genesis, 37 all the way to the end of 50, you read about Joseph's entire story. And when you read Joseph's story, it will make you think of my tennis buddies and maybe your own life and maybe the lives of your friends who have gone through painful circumstances and yet found themselves believing that God was with them and knowing it and never forgetting it. Joseph finds himself being beaten up by his brothers. In fact, they leave him for dead. They decide to have mercy on him and not leave him for dead in that moment. And so they sell him off to some slave traders that are making their wear past, and they tell their father that their brother is dead. Joseph, sold into slavery, finds himself in a land that is not his own, around people that are not his own. And yet it says in Genesis 37 that God was with him. How could that be? It seems to me that if God was with him, his brothers would have loved him. It seems to me that if God was with him, that God would have protected him from this pain. But no, even in this circumstance where Joseph is alone, sold as a slave, he was practically royalty in his town. No, he's now in a very foreign place, alone, and yet God is with him. Because God was with him, he finds himself serving in a household, and he gains respect among that owner and finds himself then leading that household. Again, Genesis says he found favor with his owner because God was what? That's right, with him. God was with him. Joseph's ups and downs are not over. They're going to get worse. He finds himself in a position compromising with this owner's wife. He gets accused of rape, thrown in jail, and there he is in the jail. And yet the authors of Genesis remind us that even in this place where he is now even more alone, he thought it couldn't get worse, but it did. God was with him. And Joseph's life, his entire life, continues this trajectory of up and down and up and down. And no less than four or five times in Genesis, it makes it very clear. The one truth that will give you, and I hope, and it's this, that God is with you, that he will never leave you, and that he will always be by your side. One of the books that changed my thinking on hope this past year is called Life in the Transitions. It's written by a guy named Bruce Feeler, and he is a collector of stories. I'm a collector of stories, but he is so a million times more. He collected life stories of people and he plotted them out and he created a a whole theory about transitions in life. 
You've gone through some transitions in your life. You could name them. It could be moving. It could be buying a house. It could be a marriage. It could be a divorce. It could be a job change. It could be an illness, a diagnosis, you name it. Bruce Feeler in all of his research says that you, in your lifetime, you're going to go through three to five major transitions. And those three to five transitions are going to define your life, who you are and where you are, your trajectory. And further, he says that those transitions last anywhere from two to five years in length. So I don't know if you're good with basic math, but if you're 50 years old, that means that 25 of your years are probably spent in a transition of some kind. What he finds in his research is that every life story has a shape, and that shape could really be boiled down into one of three shapes. They're different for all of us, but he found three broad categories. And he found that these shapes have a deep impact on whether or not you have a hope tank that is full. They discovered this as they paid attention, researchers, psychologists, to families who have kids with special needs. They saw the kids with special needs excelling in some groups and not excelling in other groups. And so in their research, they decided to figure out what's the difference in this family versus other families where they're underperforming. And this is what they found. The students, the kids, the young people, even young adults that were performing well, they knew the stories of their parents and their grandparents and those who were extended members of their family and they could tell about the successes and the failures of all the people in their family. So they begin to categorize these shapes. And this is what Feeler found out. Most families have one of three shapes. Some families have an ascending story. Our family, you know, we're doing better. I'm doing better than my parents. My parents did better than their grandparents. And it is a trajectory of success and wealth not just money, but time, other things that shows that this family is doing better and better and better and better over time. What do you think it does to the children, grandchildren of these families to know that this family's doing better and better and better and better and you're next? Oh, the pressure is immense. These families find themselves struggling. There's another story that families tell. It's called a descending story. And this descending story is, well, our family was doing great, everybody was fine, and then some catalytic event. Grandpa lost his job, so-and-so passed away, we moved across the country, we lost all our friends, the Great Depression hit, you name it, some catalyst event. And ever since then, our family has not done well. It's a descending story. But there's a third story, a third shape to stories. And they found this to be the case in the families of the special needs kids that were doing extremely well in their families and in their peer groups and in their classes. And it's called the oscillating story. And this is the story where families say, you know, we were doing great and then dad lost his job. So he went back to school and we started over. But then, you know, everything was going fine. And then this occurred. And this, this picture of the stock market type story, ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. And they realized that if you can embrace the oscillation of your story, and if you can understand that failure is a part of every life, then you will build what he calls hope 
resilience. And this hope resilience allows you to understand that your circumstances don't determine your fate. Well, he doesn't give it the spiritual qualities that the life of Joseph does, but if there ever was an oscillating story, it's the life of Joseph, who finds himself getting beat up by his brothers and says, man, didn't see this coming. What a day, right? And then he gets bought. Wow, I got bought. That's great. I guess some people didn't get bought. And you get this feeling that Joseph is the boy who walks into this room full of manure and says, I don't know what's going on, but there must be a pony in here somewhere, right? Joseph, well, the modern-day equivalent to Joseph is one of my favorite TV characters right now. His name is Ted Lasso. Has anybody watched some Ted Lasso? Let me hear you applaud if you've watched a little Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is an American football coach who finds himself across the pond coaching soccer, and he can absolutely be not one bit downtrodden or beaten down by English pessimism in any way at all. He brings full-blown American optimism to the English people, and he absolutely wins them over. And I get the impression that Joseph was exactly the same way. Egypt, I can't believe I'm here. I've never seen Egypt. The pyramids, they're huge. Have you seen them? And here he is, sold as a slave. I can't believe I'm in jail. And weeks later, he finds himself in charge of the jail. And eventually, God uses his life story to bring back his family, full reunited. In fact, he saves the nation of Israel from a famine and gives them sustenance for the years to come. It's incredible how God weaves his story together. So let me take you back to the question. And it's this one. What would you do if you believed that God was with you? Even if you were sold into slavery or find yourself in prison, even if you found yourself on this side of a divorce, you never thought that was going to be a part of your story, even if you knew that you're unemployed and you know what the job market's like right now, even if you thought your career was moving in good places, good directions, and yet now it feels like a dead end, even if every relationship that you've ever had feels like it's going nowhere, what if you believed that God was with you, that he was for you, that whatever you're experiencing, he will walk through it with you. And he will use it not only for your good, but for his glory. And the result will be that you will experience peace and hope like you've never known before. If you're like me, and your hope often wavers based on your circumstances, or based on how well things are going for you on a given day, I know you're tired of that. I know you're tired of reading headlines and wondering. I know you're tired of looking at the state of the world or even the state of your own life and wondering if things are going to turn around. Would it be great to step off that circumstance treadmill into a different place where it is well with your soul, where you know and you trust that the God who made all of this, who put it into place, who holds it in his hand, who tonight will cause this sun to set and the moon to rise and the stars to spin, who holds the earth in the hollow of his hand and he holds your life in the same place, wouldn't you like to know that he is with you and believe it? Well, the truth is, is that scripture tells us that. And many of us walk every day without this knowledge or awareness or even belief. 
but you don't have to do that. You can walk with trust and knowing that God is with you. It changes everything. Your awareness is everything. And you surrendering to God every day, knowing and believing that he will guide your steps. It doesn't make them all perfect. We self-correct every day. But what would you do at work, at home, with your career, in your closest, most intimate of relationships, if you knew and believed that God was with you and that even when you would fail, you would fail on him. He would hold you, pick you up to walk again another day. Why don't we ask God this question together and see what the Holy Spirit does with your imagination? Why don't you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this question not because we're trying to tempt you or challenge you, but because we're trying to challenge ourselves. Lord, we recognize that you are here in this place. And I think about how many times I've walked these paths or these trails, uh, wringing my hands or praying about an issue or maybe worrying or fretting about something or maybe just lost in my own head or my own thoughts without an awareness of your presence. And Lord, in your patience and in your kindness, you wait silently for us to open our hands to you and surrender. So Lord, there are some folks here listening that have some business issues in front of them, decisions to make that feel weighty and heavy, lots of zeros behind them, Lots of people at stake. And Lord, we want to ask the question, not what is the smart thing to do or even the strategic thing to do or the most beneficial thing for us to do. What we want to ask is, what would we do if we knew that you were with us and that you would teach us about what it means to follow you, whether we succeed or whether we fail? Lord, we recognize that every one of us in this amphitheater will point to moments of loss and failure as some of the most incredible catalysts in our life. And yet we resist them with all we have and all we are. What we want more than anything else is to know that you are with us and to be aware of your presence. And so, Lord, would you open those things up to us? There's some listening right now that are facing a decision about a relationship some issues at work, questions about a future, fear about moving forward. Lord, what would we do if we knew with confidence that you are with us and win, lose, or draw? You, your love, your acceptance, your forgiveness, your mercy, being reconciled to you in our relationship that will never change. And so, Lord, we throw our lives at your mercy. And we want to live lives of wild abandon and trust. We don't want to live with fear. We don't want to live without peace. We don't want to live in a world that's controlled by so many other things. We only want to follow you, whatever it looks like. Lord, you've given us this one life to give over to you. Through grace and mercy, we pray that we would do so as a holy offering. And we would offer all that we are, all that we have to you, the King of Kings, 
who loves us, who is with us right now, and who will never leave us.